step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. You're listening to the Naked Bible Podcast. To support this podcast, go to NakedBiblePodcast.com and click on the support link in the upper right-hand corner. If you're new to the podcast and Dr. Heiser's approach to the Bible, click on New Start Here at NakedBiblePodcast.com. Welcome to the Naked Bible Podcast, episode 80, Leviticus 19 and 20. I'm your layman, Trey Strickland, and he's a scholar, Dr. Michael Heiser. Hey, Mike, how you doing? Very good. Very good. Merry Christmas, by the way, Trey. Yes, Merry Christmas. I hope you got all the toys and the presents that you <laughs> asked for. Yeah, all the books. Right? <laughs> you were nice and not naughty, and Santa came yeah. to visit. Yeah, everybody. I always ask everybody for Amazon gift certificates. I, I do, too. It's, it's just the cheesy. easiest thing. Yes, that's exactly what I ask for as well. Yeah, and then I get to listen to my wife tell me how impersonal that is. It's like, oh, yeah. But it's perfect, though, because you can get anything you want. Yep. Yep. It's Rather bad. than trying to explain why you would want something. <laughs> yes. You don't have to think about it and pick something. Just give me that and I'll figure it out later. Right. Who would ever care about that? Well, that really isn't the question, is it? Oh, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, it went well. Well, we should uh, jump in here to Leviticus 19 and 20. Hey, you know, we're, we're sort of, I guess... Uh, Three quarters of the way here through Leviticus, who would have ever thought? But 19 and 20, there will be some repetition, again, to some of the things we've covered already. I'm going to try not to spend the time uh, going over the familiar territory, but picking out a few interesting things. And there are a couple really kind of puzzling things in these two chapters. And I think people are going to find it really interesting that some of these sort of classic puzzles actually relate to what we would call, again, the supernatural worldview uh, of ancient Israel. Again, getting into that divine counsel, otherworldly kind of stuff when you really wouldn't think it. But we're going to see examples of that today, again, just popping up where, like I just said a moment ago, you wouldn't expect it. So, Two chapters, 19 and 20. Chapter 19, if you could, if I could summarize that, it's basically like a mini Torah. And that means there, there are a number of laws in chapter 19 and commandments that are kind of found elsewhere in the Torah, but specifically from roughly verse three on through verse 12, uh, and even, even a little bit beyond 12, you get to the later, to the latter end of Leviticus 19. There are going to be half a dozen or so commands that mirror the Ten Commandments. And so scholars tend to, again, look at a good part of Leviticus 19 as this idea of a mini Torah for that reason. You have a repetition of the Ten Commandments, and then you have laws that show up in Exodus after you know the giving of the law that are specifically brought up here. So hence the characterization. Chapter 20 
sort of restates or rearticulates a lot of the things we saw last time in chapter 18 on the subjects of you know sexual prohibitions, forbidden sexual behaviors. Uh, it has a little bit of overlap in some respects with chapter 19, but there are two primary differences between chapter 20, again, and the prohibitions, the sexual prohibitions here in this chapter, chapter 20, and then chapter 18, which we talked about in the last episode, at least the previous episode on Leviticus. And I have a, a little pull quote from Levine to explain sort of what the differences are. So he says in his commentary in Leviticus, the contents of chapter 18 are for the most part formulated apodictically. And what that means is that's academies for a sort of a straight imperative. Thou shalt not, do not, you shall not, that kind of thing, just flat out commands. So that's the way chapter 18 tends to present these prohibitions. As is normally true, Levine continues, of apodictic texts, a penalty is not specified for each offense. So if you go back and look at Leviticus 18, it doesn't really get into penalties. Rather, Levine continues, there's only a collective penalty formulated within the overall framework of the admonition against pagan worship. If you remember back in Leviticus, the prohibitions were framed by saying, hey, don't do things that the Egyptians and the Canaanites do. And then there was this sort of collective responsibility sense for holiness. That's what Levine's uh, getting at here. He continues here, in chapter 20, on the other hand, we have these commands formulated casuistically. That's another academies term for case law. And the wording for that is usually if XYZ happens or when XYZ happens, then here's the punishment. Uh, or, you know, then here's here's what you do in response. So Levine ends his little quotation here. Thus, in addition to an overall admonition, again, chapter 18, it provides specific penalties here in chapter 20. And the penalties are often of a capital nature, but each offense, you know, is going to get some sort of penalty. So moving on from Levine, this, um, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on, you know, comparing the apodictic section and the casuistic section, because again, the, 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 the commands are basically the same. It's just the penalty is the issue, and we will talk about the penalty. But that's only the first difference between chapters 18 and 20. There's a second difference, and that is chapter 18 is, again, sort of oriented by, it, it presents a rationale for the commands in terms of what the Canaanites and what the Egyptianites, Egyptians, and just trying to rhyme there, what those pagan cultures, pagan civilizations, Gentile civilizations do. And in the first three verses of Leviticus 18, again, that, that's what, that's what the, the content says. Hey, don't do like these cultures do. Chapter 20, on the other hand, is focused only on Canaanite context, only on Canaanite religion. And we'll hit a little bit of that when we hit chapter 20 in the first five verses. Now, what that means Again, just by way of a general introduction, and I thought I'd throw this in because there are some some people I know who follow the podcast, the blog, they're interested in these sorts of things. But since you have the same laws, the same commands in two different chapters, but one is framed by Canaan and Egypt and the second one is framed by Canaan, scholars will tend to look at things like that and say, okay, it looks like these respective chapters were written at different periods of Israelite history. 
again, you take that for what it's worth. But in chapter 18, if we have Egypt and Canaan, that's that really reflects the Mosaic context, the Mosaic period. Because you have the exodus from Egypt, then you're going on into Canaan. Whereas chapter 20, you're dealing, Egypt's not even in the picture. And so it seems to, again, be framed by a later period, maybe during the monarchy, after they're in the land, that kind of thing. Uh, specifically, Molech uh, worship uh, is focused on in chapter 20. And again, the idolatry was a big pro, a big problem during the, the monarchy. Molech, again, gets mentioned in the prophets, that sort of thing. And so these are the sorts of things that lead scholars to wonder about the time of composition of certain portions of the Pentateuch. So it's not all, you know, sort of like, again, source critical theory and that kind of thing. There are actually things in the content of books of the Torah that make people wonder, well, why is it this and that? Or this versus that. Why Why do we have the sameness and then yet we have a difference? And in this case, again, it just seems reflective of different periods of Israelite history. Now, whether that's the case or not, you know, we, we're not omniscient, we can't know, but you can make an argument that that makes sense or it helps, assuming that helps make sense of why one thing is cast one way and then another chapter is cast a different way. So I thought, again, I'd throw that in. There are some people out there who are interested in those sorts of things. Chapter 20, uh, one more general note. The first 16 verses are going to be capital offenses, and then verses 17 through 21 are going to be, we're, we're going to have the penalty as being cut off from the Israelite community. We spent a lot of time in our last two chapters in Leviticus, our last couple chapters on the cut off penalty. So I'm not going to go back into that, but Levine comments here uh, about that. This penalty, again, again he's really talking about. The, the differences in the penalties, but the, this penalty is imposed for certain marital violations that were not considered sufficiently severe to warrant punishment by death. And so what, what he means by that is, hey, the first 16, uh, first 16 verses, those offenses are violation of, again, the, the what we talked about last time, uh, relationships, sexual relationships between members of the nuclear family, the immediate family. And, and since those were viewed as more offensive then they get dealt with more harshly, capital offense, whereas the other ones, again, other violations that occur with people not included in that inner group, again, you get this penalty being cut off from the Israelite community. And again, we talked about that last time, how that might be exile and that sort of thing. So again, there, there are differences there. Just wanted to throw that in because again, people, some people I know are interested in those sorts of things. But let's jump into chapter 19, do some specific things. I'm going to read the first, oh, Uh, First four verses, so let's just jump in here. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Every one of you shall revere his mother and his father, and you shall keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. Do not turn to idols or make for yourselves any gods of cast metal. I am the Lord your God. Now, the first thing I want to park on here is this statement, and we're going to actually come back to it a little bit later, but every one of you shall revere his father and his mother. Of course, what it actually says, it, it inverts those. See, we're used to putting father ahead of mother, like it occurs in the, in the Ten Commandments and other things like that. But here we have, every one of you shall revere his mother and his father. They're reversed. Literally, it's every one of you shall, or, or each one, his mother and his father, you shall revere. Again, so in the, even in the original, the mother is placed before the father. Again, this is kind of unusual. And commentators think that in this case here, it's deliberate. The mother precedes the father, whereas again, the father usually comes first. Again, that's usually what we think of. Then that's what you'd expect, again, in a patriarchal, patrilineal society. 
when you actually go back and look at the commands, though, you know, honor thy father and thy mother, you have, you know, the expected father first order. And scholars look at this and say, what's probably going on here, the reason for the change in order, is that the two statements need to be understood together. And so that the two statements amount to an equal estimation, an equal exaltation, an equal honoring of both parents. So the, you know, someone in Israel could not get away with saying, oh, I just defended my mother, but not my father. It would have been worse if I'd offended my... No, you can't do that. Even in the patriarchal culture, because again of the, the inversions of the word order, again, most scholars are going to say we need to understand these together. And each parent was put at the same level uh, in terms of honoring them for the sake of, you know, avoiding punishment or just in general pleasing God, that sort of thing. So we're going to come back to this father and mother honoring point in a bit, but I wanted to start off by saying that. We continue on in Leviticus 19 verses 5 through uh, 8, talk about the peace offering. Again, that's not territory we're going to revisit. Uh, From about verses 9 through 11, you get, again, some, some things about what to when you're you know when you're gleaning in the field you know you leave some for the poor don't strip your vineyard bare verse ten again a provision for the poor we're going to come back to this when we hit uh, some of the jubilee uh, legislation that sort of thing later in the book so I'm not going to camp on it now but in verse eleven we get thou shalt not steal again very familiar again this is a mini Torah and in verse twelve we get this line you shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of your God I am the Lord. Now, again, this harkens back, you know, to some of the familiar language of of Torah and the Ten Commandments about lifting up, taking the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Here the the verb is changed to swearing uh, falsely. And and, and swearing is the language of entering into an oath. Again, we have here in verse 12 a parallel to the the third commandment. And notice, again, I thought I'd throw this in to notice neither of these commands say or forbid taking an oath by God's name. In other words, it doesn't say you shall not take an oath by God's name. It says, don't take an oath falsely by the name of the Lord. Okay. And so the idea is that since this, especially here in Leviticus, when you have this swearing language, which is the language of covenant or the language of agreement, making agreements that that are, you know, binding in some way. If you swear by God's name, that in effect brings God into the proceedings as a witness. It makes God party to the agreement. And so God naturally wants no part of a false agreement. And the result of that is profaning the name of your God. In other words, it treats you treat God's name as if it were not holy. And, and we've, we've talked before about name theology, that the name of God isn't just this abstract, like, you know, consonants or kind of, you know, pronunciation of particular le- it, It's more than that. It, it, it refers to God's person. God's presence, you know, his his identity. Okay, so when you swear falsely by the name, you know, of God, you bring him into the agreement, and 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 you, you know, you know, you're not going to keep this thing, or you end up just, you know, sort of just treating it as a light thing, a contemptible thing, and just not honoring it. You have brought God into the process. You've brought God into the agreement, and again, God wants no part of a false agreement. It it treats him, not just his name. Again, we're not worried about revering consonants here. We're, we're worried about revering a person, okay, Yahweh of Israel. It treats him as if he were not holy, as if he were not distinct, as if he were not special. In other words, you, you, you treat him like you, you know, you treat him with contempt the same way you would treat an equal or a lesser person with contempt. And God is not your equal. God is not your lesser. He is your superior. 
And he's far superior. He does not want to be represented by anyone who is corrupt. He does not want his own renown diminished. Okay? So we, when we enter into agreements, and we need to be careful to obey an oath that involves making, you know, saying God is my witness or something like that, because we want to sanctify God's name. We want his name to be elevated. We want, uh, when, when people think of you, they think of, of you in good ways, and they would think of your God in good ways, that sort of thing. Again, not to just make it mundane or drag it down, that sort of, that sort of thinking, that sort of thought goes behind it. Now, in verse, we continue on in Leviticus 19, we've got but uh, in verse 14, something interesting. Well, let's, I'll just go back to verse 13. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. In other words, pay people what you owe them. Verse 14, you shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. Again, the point of this this is one of the, the, the few instances where physical handicaps are brought up uh, in the text and, you know, specifically. The, the, the treatment of people that are in these situations. So the point is not, you know, obviously to restrict good good treatment of the handicapped only with respect to these two handicaps. That that would be kind of silly. But rather the point is that is you're not supposed to prey on someone by using their weakness or their handicap against them. Again, it's just a it's just a moral principle that shows up pretty clearly in this passage and some others. Keep going. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. Now that's interesting because, again, of all the social justice talk you you hear, especially in our cultural context, it, it, you almost come away with this idea, and I've blogged a lot about about this before, but you almost come away with this idea that that if someone's poor, they're somehow better in the eyes of God, or you know, God like favors them more or smiles at them more, or whatever. And this verse actually makes it pretty clear that that is not the case. It says, "You shall do no justice, no injustice in court. Don't be partial. You shall not be partial to the poor, or defer to the great. Don't be partial to either. In righteousness." shall you judge your neighbor. So there's not supposed to be any favoritism at all. Even, you know, if someone is in a certain situation where you're you're naturally, at least if you're human, you're going to be instinctively sympathetic towards someone because, again, of their situation, their poverty, and, and who, you know, might really need help. But if it's unjust... If, you've, if you're actually crossing a line of justice to help that person at the expense of someone who doesn't need as much help, it's still an unjust act. So the, the point of the Torah is that there should be no favoritism at all. Everyone should be viewed equally in this setting. And this is actually stated again in Exodus 23.3. Again, that's going right back to that section that's after the Torah is given. On Sinai, Exodus 23.3 says, nor uh, shall you show deference to a poor man in his dispute? In other words, just because he's poor doesn't mean he wins the dispute. Doesn't mean he gets treatment that would result in injustice to someone else. Now, of course, there's plenty of laws in the Old Testament about the reverse, about oppressing the poor. But the reason I bring this up is because typically in this discussion, that's the only thing that's discussed, the laws about oppressing the poor. And it's very clear in Torah, it's very clear in the, in the, in the law, that the point is equity, complete equity, complete impartiality in matters of justice, no matter who the decision is between, rich or poor, small or great, whatever. Everybody's even. So again, that that tends to be minimized in a lot of the social justice discussions we get today, at least again in our culture. Let's go down to verse 19, and there's something interesting here. We have a, a, an interesting parallel, and this is going to get us into one of the main subjects of, of 
of our time today. We have, again, a, a very strange verse that comes up a lot of times when people, if they talk about Leviticus, they, they'll end up here at, at some point. Leviticus 19.19 19 says, You shall keep my statutes. You shall not let your cattle breed with a different kind. You shall not sow your field with two kinds of seed. Nor shall you wear a garment of cloth made of two kinds of material. Like what? You know, what, what in the world? What, what's up with that? Again, it's the it's this weird law. There are these laws against mixing things, against mixtures. Leviticus nineteen nineteen has a parallel over in Deuteronomy twenty two verse nine says this: You shall not sow your vineyard with a second kind of seed, else the fullness from the seed you have sown and the yield of the vineyard may not be used. Verse ten: You shall not plow with an ox and an ass together. And then verse eleven: You shall not wear cloth of wool and linen mixed together. So you know. Not completely the same thing, but basically the same thing. So Deuteronomy, if you noticed, again, listening to the quotations there, Deuteronomy has a few changes in it. uh, But again, the emphasis is still on these, again, rather strange laws about mixing. But Deuteronomy changes breeding the different animal species together to plowing them together, to using them in the same plow. Now, that, again, has led some scholars to wonder why Deuteronomy was, was changed. I mean, why, why is it different? Um, and some will take it something like this and say, well, maybe Deuteronomy was written later at a different time by a different hand or whatever. Uh, other scholars, and I think this makes good sense, especially if you remember the Samson story, other scholars conjecture that Deuteronomy, the reference to plowing, is actually a reference to breeding because plowing was a common ancient Near Eastern euphemism for sexual intercourse. And the Samson story actually uses uh, this kind of terminology. This is when Samson you know, was going to get married to the Philistine woman, and he, he has this riddle. And then uh, the people that he was essentially aren't going to win the prize, you know, they keep harassing you know, his wife to get her to harass Samson to, to tell them what the answer is. And, and, and uh, Samson says this after the fact, after they've gotten the information out of, out of his wife. He says in Judges 14, 18, the men of the city, or let me, let's just go back to get the, the full context here. The men of the city said to him, Samson, on the seventh day before the sun went down, what is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion? Of course, that was the answer to the riddle. And he, Samson, said to them, if you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle. So again, plowing with the heifer, again, has this, this implication of to use a, a, a sort of a euphemism, a double entendre uh, in our culture, screwing around with, if you hadn't screwed around with my wife, you know, th- this is the idea that, that Samson is using kind of a, a sexual pun to say, or, or an idiom and, and saying, hey, you, you, if you hadn't messed around with my wife, you would have never gotten the answer to this. And so some scholars look at that passage and say, well, maybe the plowing here in Deuteronomy is really, again, sort of another way of referring to the to the breeding, and there's really no difference here. Again, take it for what it's worth. Uh, it's, it's kind of a piece of trivia, what, because what I really want to get to in this, in this passage is the whole idea of mixing. What could the logic, the rationale possibly be? Why are mixtures bad? Why is it bad to throw two kinds of seed in the same hole, you know, to plant. Why, who would, would care if you plow with two different animals? Uh, frankly, hey, what, a, what about, what about mules? Are they like evil and bad because you can mate horses and donkeys and, and mules are mentioned in the Bible. I mean, they were around at the time of David. You get a few references to them in Samuel and Kings and, and mules are never called evil or awful or bad, or, you know, if you have a mule, you should get rid of it because it came about as a result of this cross breeding. There's nothing like that. 
so people have wondered like what why these things here listed and and again what what could the logic possibly be? Now, this is where I think it gets kind of interesting, and I, I can almost guarantee uh, you probably would not have heard this before, but I'm, I'm going to quote at length from Jacob Milgram on this passage, uh, because I think, and it's going to be a lengthy quote, and I'll do as I typically do, throw some comments in here and there, but I'll tell you when the quote ends. It's going to be a long one. But it's really kind of fascinating what the logic appears to be, and I think Milgram does a nice job of summarizing it, again, even though this quote will be somewhat lengthy. So he, he starts out by saying this, it is of utmost significance that the cherubim, <laughs> you think, well, where is he getting this? We're talking about cherubim already, and what does that have to do with mixing animals? Okay, just hang on. It is of utmost significance that the cherubim flanking the Ark, Ark of the Covenant, were mixtures. Okay, we, we get, again, descriptions of cherubim in Ezekiel. Again, whenever they're fully described, they're, they, they have different parts, their mixtures. And uh, Milgram continues, he says, their mixtures, as were the divine guardians in Mesopotamia, which is karuv is, is an Akkadian word. It's where the, the cherubim idea comes from, Mesopotamia. If you go back and look at the artwork, again, there are these mixed creatures, you know, different, different animal parts, even mixed with, with humans, okay? Milgram says, this is the initial indication which will be corroborated in the two following prohibitions. And he's, he's in this passage that we're in here. This is the indication that mixtures, catch this, mixtures belong to the divine realm on which the human being, except for divinely designated persons like priests, may not encroach. The most favored explanation for the prohibition against mixtures is that of a violation of the order God brought into the world by separating species. So Milgram's going to say, okay, you've, you've probably heard this one. This is the, t- the answer you typically get. Oh, well, God separated the species and that's why you know, the, the two you know animals shouldn't breed again never mind the fact that mules are okay but again it's not consistent milgram says now that theory could explain the mating prohibition maybe but it has no relevance for the following two prohibitions about mixing seeds and clothing you know god didn't create different kinds of clothing that you shouldn't mix okay and and seeds again it's not the same kind of mixture because the seeds never fuse together. They, they, you know, they sprout. Maybe they're in the same hole, but they don't fuse together. And so it's not the same as the intercourse idea. So Milgram's point is that, well, you can argue for this separation of species thing and creation order, but it doesn't work with the other two. I think he's right. It doesn't work. He, he continues in his treatment, as intimated above, the most plausible explanation in my estimation is that mixtures belong to the sacred sphere namely the sanctuary, again, sacred space, as do its officiants, the priests. Thus, the lower cover of the tabernacle and the curtain closing off, again, that part of the sacred enclosure, are a mixture of linen and wool. So you actually have a mixture of the two fabrics in the tabernacle. The high priest's ephod, breastplate, and belt contain the same mixture as well. Exodus 28. Exodus 39, uh, the, the tabernacle curtain was Exodus 26. Milgram continues, for the ordinary priest, this mixture is limited to his belt, Exodus 39, 29. And the Israelite is conceded this mixture by the insertion of a single blue thread of wool in his linen tassels, as recognized by the rabbis. Since linen is flax, blue must be wool. And as astutely perceived by Bechor Shore, again, another authority he quotes, quote, it is as if the tassel served the layman 
as a royal scepter. In other words, having this one tassel go through the clothing of the average Israelite sort of made them part of the the, the more sacred uh, group, even though that by they, they were lesser. Again, they're still the people of God. Uh, they're, they're still going to be able to again if they're if they're pure. They're still going to be on sacred space or at least parts of it. Then ordinary priests, again, have a little bit more of the mixture in their belt. But again, the high priest has has mixture all over the place, you know, because he's the most holy. He's the, he's the closest to the sacred area, the most sacred areas. So the argument here is that this mixing of cloth, this mixing of, of, of textures was, again, something you would associate with sacred space. He continues, Milgram, Milgram continues, Shore sees an analogy between the violet cords of the layperson's tassel and the high priest's turban, again because of the descriptions, Exodus 28. However, the high priest's violet cord is only an accessory to bind the holy gold plate to the turban. It's not not as big a mixture deal as some of the other things he wears. Nonetheless, a connection between the two can be deduced. Whenever Israel sees the blue thread in any of his tassels, the high priest's tassels, or their own tassels, or the, you know, any, any of the high priest's garments or Israelites' own tassels, he is reminded of the blue cord banding the plate that bears the inscription, Holy to Yahweh, again, on the high priest. And thus he is constantly called by virtue of looking at his clothing and, and getting this reminder in his head, he is constantly called to seek holiness by fulfilling the divine commandments. Again, the point of, of what Milgram is saying is if you look at what the high priest wears, what the normal priests wear, and what the average Israelite wears, even though it's only one thread running through uh, their garment, they're mixtures. And, and they're mixtures to degree. The greater the degree of mixture, the closer to the most holy place that person can go. And so the mixing of the cloths is about sacred space. Now we'll go down a little bit in what Milgram says. He says, one of the three color of the three colors in the tabernacle, curtains and priestly clothing, the blue is always listed first, thirty signifying its greater importance. Exodus twenty five, twenty six, so on and so forth. However, or note, however, that its primacy breaks down in Second Chronicles two six. Furthermore, the high priest's robe and the uppermost ark cover are composed of tekelet khalil, pure blue, indicating the high priest's unique responsibility to officiate in the inner sancta and on Yom Kippur to enter the Holy of Holies. Even more telling evidence of the higher status of the blue over the other colors is that a dark blue cloth covers all the inner sancta, all the, all the objects, again, in the, in the holy place, during the wilderness journeys. But only the ark is covered on top with a blue cloth, again, as a symbol of the divine presence. It is crucial that it always be visible. The blue cloth you know, is to be kept visible, again, because that's linked to the divine presence. Whereas the inner sancta, the table, the incense altar, and the, can, uh, the, the uh, menorah are bedecked with fewer cloths, the uppermost being of leather. Again, Numbers 4, num- you know, various verses there. Thus, the priestly command to add a blue thread to the fringes that must be worn by all Israelites indicates avid desire to inspire all Israelites to aspire to a life of holiness, the theme of this whole chapter. 
Above all, Milgram continues, this explanation clarifies the insertion of this prohibition in this chapter. Again, Leviticus 19. Israel is commanded to be holy, but is warned that it is not allowed the privilege of breeding different animals, sowing mixed seed, or wearing fabrics of mixed seeds. For these are reserved for the sacred sphere, and in the case of clothing, to the priests. The mythology of the ancients was rife with mixtures, hybrid animals, cherubim, guarding temple entrances and flanking royal thrones, Gods mating with humans, Genesis 6, animals are changing into human form. They are biblical allusions to this background, as in the myth of celestial beings mating with earth women. He quotes Genesis 6, 4 there, or 6, 1 through 4. Cherubim exist in Israel's cult, more precisely, inside the sanctuary, in woven form on the inner curtains, and the veil of the tabernacle, carved on the inner walls and doors of the Solomonic temple find cherubims again, and in sculpted form inside both sanctuaries. Being ensconced inside the sanctuary, all these cherubim were visible to only priests, and the cherubim inside to no one, who were admitted to their presence because they too, wearing garments of mixed seed, symbolically became cherubim. In other words, they, they, could, they could join the heavenly entourage, is the way I would put it. They were, they were qualified, again, to, to, to penetrate the sanctuary, to attend the service of Yahweh. Again, the cherubim themselves, back to Milgram, however, were not visible to the laity. They could not become objects of worship. Uh, so, it, again, it's just, you don't really think about this stuff until, again, you actually start thinking about things that, you know, objects, in this case, cherubim, furniture, cloths, and how the cloths are made, and what color they are, and, and, and where those things are used, i.e. sacred space. When, when you start to notice that, hey, a lot of that stuff, and frankly, you know, just that list that Milgram went through is, is fairly thorough. A lot of this stuff would sort of violate Leviticus 19 because it, it, it's made of mixture. And so, the idea here that, that Milgram is trying to, to communicate is that mixtures characterize holiness in the sacred space, in the sacred sphere, and those people authorized to be in that space. The laity can't penetrate that far because they have, again, less mixture. It's that their clothing is a signal to them. Yes, that you're part of a holy people. You do have the blue thread going through your garments, but you are not a member of the priesthood, and you can't cross certain boundaries. Your clothing, think of it as a uniform, your clothing identifies you with where you should be and shouldn't be. Again, Milgram says, this is no different from the cherub guarding the entrance to the sacred garden, so armed Levites guard the entrance into the sacred enclosure. Again, another, it's just another parallel he mentions. Unauthorized encroachers must be put to death. Numbers 1, Numbers 3, number, you know, Numbers 18. He quotes a bunch of passages here. Again, I think there's something to what he's saying here. I think we can we can boil it down to, to a generalization like so, that these laws against mixtures, whether they be animals or mixing the seeds or, again, the, 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 the cloth, the clothing items, the principle to focus on is the mixture itself, not not what is being mixed or prohibited from being mixed. But the, the, the focus is, is on the idea of mixture itself. Since mixture is is approved in the Torah for sacred space, Again, and it had something to do with each area of sacred space, the people who were allowed to occupy those areas, the sacred objects, what they were covered with, again, the, the veils, all that sort of stuff, to communicate the idea that, again, 
These areas are distinct. These areas are special. Sacred space is different than common space. People who are allowed on sacred space are different than people who aren't. God has chosen you know, the priests from the tribe of Levi and then Levites to do certain things. He has not chosen the other tribes. To enforce this idea sort of in a sweeping way or in a redundant way might be a better way to say it, uh, through the congregation, these prohibitions in Leviticus 19 and Deuteronomy later are given to remind people that mixture is associated with sacred space. These are visible reminders, and they are, they are they're reminders that are drawn that affect everyday life, plowing, breeding cattle, planting crops. This is an agrarian culture. So there are little reminders sprinkled in through the culture that teach this larger, again, theological point about sacred space. Again, I think there's really something to that, and it, it might sound really odd, but when you think about it, uh, when you think about, again, the, the, the dramatic contrast between where mixture is allowed and where it's condemned, it, I think it has a, a good deal of explanatory power. So it actually takes something as odd as these really weird laws in Leviticus 19, and it, it shows how even them, even those laws are a part of this, again, supernatural worldview. Uh, that that the Israelites, this was their everyday reality. This this permeates their culture. It permeates their everyday lives uh, to reinforce again theological points. And now we're down to even what they wear. You know where they go. We've we sort of covered that before with the system of sacrifices and offerings. We know about where to step and not to step. But now it's down to hey, breeding my animals, planting my crops, what I wear. Again, these these constant reminders of the sacred versus the normal, the sacred versus the profane or mundane. Again, I just, I, th- I think it's, I think it's really fascinating actually. Let's move into Leviticus 20. The rest of Leviticus 19 again is just largely going to be laws we've already talked about before or will talk about. I want to spend a little time on Leviticus 20 because of the, uh, again, the, the, the capital punishment issue. And also again, just some of the logic, you know, that, that goes with this. We've already talked about being cut off, so I don't want to drift too far into that, but we'll, we'll try to focus on a few things that are associated with um, capital crimes here. So in Leviticus 20, let's just start with the first five verses. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, say to the, ch- to the people of Israel, any one of the people of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn in Israel, who gives any of his children to Molech, and here's this Canaanite context, Anyone who gives any of his children to Molech shall surely be put to death. The people of the land shall stone him with stones. I myself will set my face against that man and cut him off from among his people, because he has given one of his children to Molech to make my sanctuary unclean and to profane my holy name. And if the people of the land do at all close their eyes to that man when he gives one of his children to Molech and do not put him to death, then I will set my face against that man and against his clan and will cut them off from among their people, him and all who follow him in whoring after Molech. So this is pretty severe, and we talked about it a little bit last time, that you have a death penalty, and then on top of the death penalty, it's this, I'm going to cut you off from your from your ancestors and your descendants in the afterlife. I mean, you're, you're not going to be, you know, go to be with, quote, your people. I'm going to cut you off here, the death penalty. I'm going to cut you off out there in the afterlife, too. I mean, it, this was a very severe thing that, again, just... What, what what you have here is you have two capital crimes sort of bold and or rolled into one. You have idolatry, which was itself a capital crime, and you have murder. Again, burning one of your children, you know, in, in an off as an offering to Molech. So, you know, it, it's very clear 
what the penalty is going to be and, and the logic behind it. So that this one's not too, really not too difficult. You go to verse six, though, and we reread this. If a person turns to mediums and necromancers, whoring after them, I will set my face against that person and will cut him off from among his people. Consecrate yourselves there, and therefore, and be holy, for I am the Lord your God. Keep my statutes and do them. I am the Lord who sanctifies you, for anyone who curses his father or mother shall surely be put to death. He has cursed his father or his mother. His blood be upon him. Now, that's through verse 9. It starts to get into specific commands, but let, let's just go back to verse 6 about turning to mediums and necromancers. Again, whoring after them. In Leviticus 19, mediums and necromancers were also brought up. Okay, I waited to hear to get to this point to read it, but verse 31 in chapter 19 said this, Do not turn to mediums or necromancers, do not seek them out, and so make yourselves unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. Later in Leviticus 20, Okay, we, we had read verse 6, verse 27 says this, A man or a woman who is a medium or a necromancer shall surely be put to death. They shall be stoned with stones. Their blood shall be upon them. Now, again, what, what you have here is you have a reference to the people who are doing this thing and people who are consulting with people who do that thing. You know, again, there's the medium and the necromancer, the, the ones who are communicating with the spirits. You know, the, the term for medium is uh, Ovote. Uh, if any of you have read uh, my my article on uh, the Old Testament response to pagan divination, and I've, I've, I'm going to give that to Trey and he can post that along with this episode, I, I, I recommend it because it gets into, again, what the logic is and why uh, biblical people, I mean, there's this whole list in Deuteronomy about divination, things you're not supposed to do. And some of them, you know, necromancy and is not among them, but, but some of those things are actually okay later on and are used by godly prophetic figures and you and the art my article is about well why is it that that some of this stuff is okay in some contexts and other contexts it's just all horrible you know what what's the deal and it has to do with solicitation of divine knowledge and really the 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 uh, approval of who a true prophet is a true prophet is the one who has been called and ordained and had a, had an encounter with the source of true knowledge, that is God, Yahweh of Israel. And, and the, the, the article gets into the, the whole thing about prophets having to appear before the divine council. And this is discussed in Unseen Realm as well, to sort of validate their ministry and who is their source of information. So if you go to, if you try to tap into the spiritual world, again, the Unseen Realm, and solicit secret knowledge, divine knowledge from any other source, if you're the person doing that, Right here in Leviticus, you know, the man or woman who's a medium or a necromancer shall surely be put to death because you, you have, you've betrayed Yahweh. And not only have you betrayed Yahweh, but you're trying to solicit other people of Yahweh into departing from the worship of him and, for, and from trusting him as the source of divine knowledge. Yahweh has already given you a means to get divine knowledge. It's called the priesthood. It's called the Urim and the Thummim. It's called the prophets, all this kind of stuff. So if you want to consult in some other way with some other god, then that's a betrayal. And again, that, that's the logic of that. Now, it's a little less severe uh, for people who try to get that information from the people who are doing that. Again, Leviticus you know, parses that a little bit differently. But again, the, the, the logic is a betrayal, not only of Yahweh, but trying to solicit and seduce other people to depart from Yahweh as their God, as, as, the, 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 truth, as the source of truth and, and uh, you know, divine knowledge, uh, that kind of thing. So, hence these commands, whether they be here in Leviticus or Deuteronomy. So, what it comes down to is 
this activity is a form of idolatry. It's soliciting divine knowledge, again, presuming other gods are more truthful than Yahweh, are better sources of truth than Yahweh. Again, you have to barter with those other gods. You have to do something for them, uh, for them to cough up the divine knowledge. And so that transgresses into offerings, again, rituals performed, you know, again, in the culture. And that, that's a form of idolatry. So again, that's the logic behind this one. If you go down again to verse 9, we, we read it briefly. Anyone who curses his father or mother shall surely be put to death. He has cursed his father or mother. His blood is upon him. This verse, verse 9, begins the list, or a, the bigger list, of death penalty offenses in this chapter. Right around, it goes down to about verse 16 or so. And Milgram notes in this regard, and I, th- I think this is really kind of interesting. He says, the fact that a law regarding dishonoring parents heads a list of prohibited sexual unions, because that's where the list starts. Verse 10 jumps into adultery, you know, and then we get incest, we get homosexuality, we get all this other stuff that we've seen before in Leviticus 18. Milgram says the, the fact that this list of death penalty offenses is led by a law regarding the dishonoring of parents is hardly an accident. On the contrary, it is crucial in understanding the provenance of the entire list. He says, it reflects a patriarchal society that relates all familial relationships by the twin principles of consanguinity and affinity back to one's father and mother. We talked about this last time in the previous episode about how sexual relationships were allowed or condemned based upon, uh, again, the who's in the, the, the inner group, you know, the immediate family, and who's in the other group. Milgram says, again, this, you know, having the list start this way, directs our attention to the unstated premise that dishonoring parents, that is, the breakdown of obligations to one's father or mother, specifically in relationship to not violating sexually the people in your, in your inner family and thus destroying the family, the breakdown of obligations to one's father or mother, that leads, according to Milgram, what he says, that leads to the breakdown of relationships with the other members of the familial chain. So essentially, he's saying, look, the reason why this list of prohibited sexual relationships that get the death penalty begins with the honoring, you know, dishonoring your father and mother is because all of these are perceived as efforts to destroy the family. Again, to dis- and, and when you destroy the family, you destroy the whole society. Because if you recall from the last episode, again, the, the entire society, entire, the entirety of Israelite society was based upon the relationships of these two groups, again, the, you know, the, the consanguine group, uh, groups that are, again, related uh, in a certain way, children that you produce, okay? And then the affinity group basically family relationships that you get by virtue of marriage. So those are the two building blocks to the whole culture, to the whole society. And when you destroy the the inner group, it, it's going to take everything down with it. And so this was viewed, the, these acts were viewed as attempts to do precisely that. So in the Israelite mind, again, in, in, in their perception of this, if you have a person doing this, they're not just doing it because, oh, I think that woman is hot, even though she's too closely related to me. Let me gratify myself. Get out of my bedroom, that kind of thing. No, that, that isn't the logic. The logic is you're doing that knowing full well that the result of what you're doing will destroy the family unit and will encourage other families to destroy the family unit. You are attacking 
our very existence as a people and as a culture. In other words, you're trying to undo us. You're, you're, and it's going to sound kind of, you know, to, to our ear, maybe a little bit really odd. But if you have a bunch of people doing this to the Israelite, it would look like you're trying to exterminate us as a people. Because this is going to be the result, the intermarriage, you know, the, the, the violation of the family. You are trying to literally destroy our culture. And it's, it's another means to erase us, not just as a holy people devoted to Yahweh, but as a people people. Because if these boundaries are not observed, you know, we're, it's, it, everything's going to break down because of, of all the things tied to it. Not just theology and religion, but child, you know, property, the ability to sustain yourself. To the, the ability to stay alive, you know, because if, if the family units are broken apart, it's very easy to deny women and children, especially they're, they're the real victims here. It's very easy to deny them livelihood and provision and sustenance because this is a subsistence culture. Now it's going to grow into an urban culture eventually when they get settled in the land. But at this point, this is an agrarian culture, not much beyond a subsistence culture. And if you, especially if you're a woman and a child, if you don't, if you, if you don't have a man who will honor their commitment to you because of, of physical birth consanguineous relationships. And basically the men saying, well, they're not mine. It's not my wife. It's not this. It's not that. You're toast. You don't have a means of survival unless it's something like prostitution or, or just a life of crime or something like that. Again, it just breaks everything down. And so it was viewed as extraordinarily as a, as a terror, these are terrible things to do again within that cultural context. And Milgram's point is that th- this is why the whole list begins with dishonoring your father and mother because you are attacking. This is where the attack begins. You are attacking the nuclear family, and that's why you know for all these things that person must be put to death. You know that kind of thing. And it's kind of interesting the language there at, uh, that we read at the end. His his blood guilt. His blood is upon him. Their blood is upon them. Again, at the end of verse 16, all this language about blood guilt, that tells you, tells us the reader, that people who committed these crimes were not put to death at the whim of the parents. Oh, the mom and dad just get bad and start stoning somebody. That is not the way it worked. It was the decision of an authorized court, of an authorized authority structure. And the, the statement, let's just go to Deuteronomy 21, 18 to 21, says this, if a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and though they discipline him, he will not listen to them, then his father and mother shall take hold of him and bring him to the elders of his city at the gate of the place where he lives. And they shall say to the elders of the city, our son is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He's a glutton of drunkards. You know. Then all the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones, and you shall purge the evil from your midst, and all Israel shall hear and fear. Again, that's a, that's a cross-reference to illustrate the, the fact that the elders... There was, a, there was an authority structure in the community, the elders of, of Israel, which, which began even before Sinai. Remember back in Exodus 18, these were the people who would look at a case and evaluate it and say, yeah, you know, this, this person has committed one of these offenses. And, and they view it culturally, not as just a violation of, you know, some sexual rule and, and some guy is mad about what happens to his daughter or whatever. Like, no, to their mind, it's bigger than that. You are attacking your nuclear family. If we do not punish this, other people will be encouraged to attack their nuclear families in these ways, start to break down, uh, again, the, the two major groups of our society, two major groups of relationships, the consanguine and the affinitous relationships. And that puts, our, that puts us as a people in jeopardy. And so we're, we're just not, we're not even going to go down that road. We're going to eliminate the problem right here. So again, what I'm trying to, to get across is that there is a certain logic 
uh, to this. And sure, you know, it, it's associated here in context, again, with these are theocratical governance you know, rules. Again, they're, they're very, uh, they make sense on their own level. Uh, within a patriarchal culture, the way they viewed again the family and the culture, and 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 how th- that was maintained. And so, I mean, you can look at this and say, well, we're not a theocracy. You know, we don't look at necessarily the culture this way. I mean, I, I get that. You know, right or wrong, I don't know how coherent that is to begin with. But you know, th- there are cultural differences here. But the point of the passage and the point of this kind of theology is, you do not do things in this again setting. You do not do things that, if left unchecked will amount to the disappearance, the dissolution of the people of God. You just don't do that. And so the, the rules are, are basically meant to be stop gaps to immediately halt any sort of progress down that road. So to our ear, they sound terribly harsh, and they are harsh. You know, if someone winds up dead, of course that's harsh. But again, they're, they're, there's a thought process behind them. Now, one last note, again, this, this whole thing about the mixture, uh, the mixture issue, what's going on there, and the family unit here, again, this, this possibility of transgression and dissolution. I hope you're, you're seeing that the, the two main points here in these two chapters, again, to work toward wrapping up here, is that the whole mixture thing was, again, designed to reinforce the notion of there's sacred space and there's non-sacred space. And they have to catch this point because I didn't mention it earlier. They have to coexist together. Why do they have to coexist? Because God wants to dwell with you. But you have to be taught in certain ways to respect and to honor and to exalt who God is. And you should be grateful that a being of this nature, of this perfection, of this holiness, of this, you know, fill in the blank, has decided to enter into a covenant relationship with you when he could have picked anybody because he disinherited the nations back at Babel. And he says, well, I'm going to go, I'm going to go over to this guy, Abraham, and start with him. God could have done that anywhere at any point or not at all. So this God who you, you know, have seen deliver you from Egypt and, and you know what you're dealing with to, in, in, in some, to some extent, I mean, that the power that you're dealing with here has decided to love you and wants to coexist with you. And therefore, naturally, you have to be reminded of who he is and who you are and and not treat him as something normal or as something profane, as something ordinary. And oh, by the way, for you to maintain yourselves, for you to maintain your status as his people— He's not going to have you do, you know, a bunch of crazy things, you know, just for no reason at all. Uh, the, the, the sexual relationships, he's not up there thinking, how can, I, how can I keep them from having as much pleasure as possible? And that is not the point. The point is about the stability of the people who he raised up through Abraham and Sarah, perpetuating their existence. And yeah, there's a peripheral thing about how God knows what, what will make us happy, the kind of relationships that will, will foster happiness and good relationship and, and, and good character and all that stuff and those that won't. I mean, that, that's part of it. You know, that, that's usually how this is preached, but it, it, it's actually conceptually bigger than that. It, it, it's the stability of this entity called Israel, the, the, the descendants of Abraham, whom God loves and, ha, and promised to raise up. And not only promised to raise up, but he has a destiny in mind for them. This whole thing about multiplying them as the stars, and also, again, going back to David Burnett's interview, the idea that you know, using that star language to to say something like you 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 have a, you have a cosmic destiny. You are going to be reunited back to me, like it was in Eden. You are all, you are going to join a divine family. I have to keep you alive to do that. 
You know, I can't have you going and worshiping other gods. I can't have you self-destructing through your behavior. And so I'm going to insist upon certain of these laws, and I'm also going to insist upon certain punishments to cut off any sort of degradation and dissolution process as soon as it begins. Again, that, again that's, that's the conceptual idea. So in terms of application, there's a contrast between the divine world and the human world, and there's a respect for divine order and creation order and God's you know, wish, God's intent to keep his people intact, not just happy, but also intact uh, in, in a very real sense so that they can fulfill their destiny. Mike, I know I've touched on this before, but why doesn't modern day Judaism apply the punishments in Leviticus 20 since they're not saved through Christ? Mm-hmm. I think it's the same sort of situation. Uh, you, know, you could ask the same question back in the Roman era uh, on, on one level. I mean, some, some Jews would say, well, we, we can't do this because we're, re- we're not a theocracy. So a lot of these rules are just you know, right out the window. Other Jews who are, you know, for lack of a better term, liberal, you know, reformed Judaism would say, well, we're not going to do this stuff because it's crazy. Others would say, well, maybe we should be doing this stuff, but we can't because you know, if, if we're living in, inside the United States or in, inside some European country, legally, we'll never get away with it. Again, that's the Roman situation, you know, back in the first century. You know, over in Israel, I, th- I think it's, it's, a, it's a combination, really, of the first two uh, to get away from, no, not get away, that's the wrong kind of word, but, but the, the parsing of the question through the, the lack of an ancient Israelite context, and also, at least in terms of the reform idea, uh, an, un- an unwillingness to assign theological importance to any of these ideas. So, you know, I think it's a combination of things. I mean, these punishments are coming from the Lord. So I'm trying to draw parallelisms with the Quran, mm-hmm. with how as violent as that is and how the Quran can be interpreted violent and, and it's the radicals that interpret the violence and actually act out the violence that's in the Quran. Mm-hmm. And here, I think you have some violence too that the modern day Christian wouldn't agree with necessarily with the punishments mm-hmm. in Leviticus, but yet Judaism doesn't practice that. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the Quran, because of the, of the, the broadly Semitic culture, you're going to have some overlaps there. The Quran doesn't give the same rationales, uh, again, for most of what, what's going on there. You know, I, but again, I think the, I think the New Testament, you know, is a factor here too, because if, if we look at it this way, if it, if we look at the New Testament, again, now this is easy for us to, because we're Christians. Okay. Not, we're not right. Jews. Right. But if, if we look at, at the New Testament as being, additional revelation to the old that grows out of the old and functions to interpret the old and hand in hand with the old. Again, however you want to characterize that. We would look at it and say, well, all along it was God's intent to not just have a people called Israel and run run things through a theocracy. All along, the, the whole logic of all of this was to reclaim every nation Again, to, to going back to the Deuteronomy 32 worldview, to, to work back to Eden when, when it was all one. And so you have to, you know, to do that in, in, with respect to, you know, how, how human history is playing out, you know, with Israel after the fall and all that kind of stuff. To do that, you have to, you have to bring the Gentiles back in. And so by definition, that is going to undermine and do away with just over the course of time, the theocracy. And so you could look at that and say, well, you know, it, God built the theocracy, and, but, he, but he built it, you know, with the principle of planned obsolescence. It's going to go away, and I want it to go away because that isn't the ultimate goal. And so we're, we're on the other side of that. And so for, for Christians, I mean, we can look at this and say, well, there, there'd be no point 
to reverting back to a theocracy, you know, back to a Semitic culture and back to all this stuff. And so the, these these punishments, you know, the whole crime and punishment system really evaporates on on two levels. One is culture, and the other one is actually theological, that there's no point to doing this theologically. But that's easy for us to say because we have this thing called the New Testament. We have Christ, Christology, and all this kind of stuff. You know, the, the Gentiles are a big part of, of the way we think in terms of the broad plan of God, which is drawn from the Hebrew Scriptures. This is not something invented in the New Testament. This is something embedded in the Jewish Scriptures. And since their rejection of the, of the Messiah, their rejection of the Messiah, this is actually a peripheral impact. It puts them in this situation of asking precisely the question that you're asking, well, why don't we do this stuff? I mean, shouldn't we be doing this stuff? Yahweh told us to do this stuff. You know, it, it puts them in this conundrum because of their, their rejection of the Messiah, which would have led, you know, to a different outcome. So as, as, a, as a really serious Jew, I mean, it, it's a good question. If, if the state of Israel was sort of transformed into this ultra-Orthodox state community, would they go back to this? You know, maybe they would. I, th- I think there'd be a lot of voices that would want to do that because of Torah obedience, exactly the reason you're asking the question. But in, in terms of the modern state of Israel, which is largely secularized, and I, you know, again, modern politics, I think, is part of the picture too. You're, you're just not, you're not having a serious discussion there uh, among uh, people, among Jews, right. and you know, that for was, that sort of thing. And that was my question on the perspective of the Jew side. On the Christian side, we certainly get that and understand it, but for them, I'm just wondering why they don't follow the Word of God that comes straight from Leviticus and spells out the punishments that they're supposed to do. Well, I don't, I don't know about Israeli law, but I think Israeli law is probably, you know, I, I haven't read the Israeli Constitution, but I'm willing to bet that they could not it would be illegal. Again, you'd, you'd get the, the first century situation here again. It would be illegal for a subgroup of the culture, you know, i.e. the ultra-Orthodox, to stone someone, even if they were doing it according to Torah, and that's why it's not done. I, I would think that it may not be the only reason, but I have to think that's a major reason. Well, do you, do you find that that's what the, the modern-day Muslims are doing? The radicals are interpreting the punishments in the Quran and then actually carrying them out? I mean, couldn't the well, same type of situation occur here in Leviticus? Well, if you're talking about when when I hear the word radical, I think of terrorist. You, you know, the, in other words, you could have you could have the Saudis. Let's just take the the House of Saud. Okay, I mean, they're they're going to run. I mean, my, when my dad was in the military, he was in Saudi Arabia and saw you know someone castrated for rape. You know, I mean, it just they do these things in their culture, but that doesn't mean they're terrorists. It means they're they're fundamentalists. It means they're literalists. They're Wahhabists. Okay, all that kind of thing. And, and I realize there's this blurring of categories when we talk how they look at the West and how they look at the United States. I get that. Okay, I'm not I'm not a leftist here. I'm just saying that when you use the word radical, someone who's a Saudi who would do something to help us, you know, oppose a terrorist somewhere under certain circumstances. They wouldn't view themselves as having the same political goals as a terrorist would, even though they're going to be very literalistic, you know, when it comes to the Quran. Yeah, fundamentalist. So yeah. Fundamentalist, militants, Fundamental, yeah. or whatever. That's probably maybe, a better term. Maybe Sharia, you know, followers of Sharia or Wahhabi, you know, Wahhabism or something like that. Yeah, but they, they, that's what they are. They, they are, they are literally doing these things in obedience to the Quran. I mean, that, that's that's how they're doing it. But they, since that system runs that state, again, just using Saudi Arabia as an example, there is no conflict between, oh, what does our constitution say? What, is, what does our government say? Well, that's what the government says. 
so there, th- this this conflict that you might see over in in Israel between the ultra orthodox and again we're we're just speculating here but it, it, between the ultra orthodox and the Likud party or you know whoever's in control over there that that struggle that tension is not going to be felt in Saudi Arabia because that is who runs the country well all right mike we appreciate it i know that's a touchy subject and we could probably talk all day long about that and i'm sure <laughs> <laughs> we would get lots of emails i'm sure yeah. based on that but um all right mike well uh next week we're going to continue Leviticus and 21 and 22, correct? Yep, yep, that's correct. Okay, well, with that, I just want to thank everybody for listening to the Naked Bible Podcast. God bless. Thanks for listening to the Naked Bible Podcast. To support this podcast, visit www.nakedbibleblog.com. To learn more about Dr. Heiser's other websites and blogs, go to www.drmsh.com. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.